Welcome to the Deep Dive Spirituality Conversations podcast. I'm your host, Brian Russell, and today's episode is going to be a special one. I'm recording this for release on September 21st, 2021, which happens to be the day that my book on Centering Prayer releases from Paraclete. It's called Centering Prayer, Sitting Quietly in God's Presence Can Change Your Life. And today I'm going to talk about how God uses silent meditative prayer or centering prayer to transform us. Before we get into the episode, I want to make a special offer to my listeners. If you are part of a group and you buy at least 15 copies of my book and you contact me by email, deepdivespirituality at gmail.com, I will set up a virtual Zoom session with your group, do a centering prayer session with you, and answer any questions that you might have about Centering Prayer or about anything that shows up in my book. So again, just reach out to deepdivespirituality at gmail.com. I'm so grateful to all of you who listen, and I hope this podcast episode helps you to be able to adopt a, a Centering Prayer or a silent meditative prayer session in your life and open yourself up to the profound levels of grace that you can experience uh, through this spiritual practice. Now, Centering Prayer isn't the only silent practice or solitude practice that can help you. Journaling, Prayer of Eximen is another silent and solitude practice. Lectio Divina, you can use the Jesus Prayer. There's different ways to get at what I'm going to describe today. But for me, Centering Prayer has truly been transformational in my life, and that's why I focus on it as much as I do. And the key thing that I've found that silent meditative prayer has done for me as it's helped me to essentially and metaphorically reattach my head to my own body. And what I mean by that is I would say for most of my life, and especially into my adult life, I was living out the old uh, dictum, I think, therefore I am, that Descartes uh, uh, came up with during the Enlightenment period. In other words, I equated the thoughts in my head with what reality was. And that process for me worked until it didn't. And as many of those of you who listen, I went through a really deep crisis in 2010 and 2011. You can listen back to to episode number eight, where I get into some specifics of my autobiography. So I don't want to rehearse that now. But I truly went through a devastating period of my life where essentially my faith was shattered. And it felt like my own soul was just burnt to ashes. And there was nothing left on the inside of me. And And as I began to try to move forward and make a bounce back, I discovered silence, or better yet, the silence discovered me. And in that silence, I re-encountered God in a more powerful way than I had up until that point. And again, I've been a seminary professor. I've been the pastor of multiple churches. I've been attending church my entire life. I've had dynamic conversions experiences, but I have never been touched as deeply in my very soul as I have through my experiences with Centering Prayer. And what it did, and what Centering Prayer does, is it essentially allows God to confront us 
with the deepest truths about ourselves. Now, if you do sit in silence, what you'll notice eventually, if not right off the bat, is it's not really quiet when you sit in silence because there's all kinds of chatter going around in our minds when we're just alone. That's why so many of us don't like to be alone. Because when you're alone, you're just literally alone with your thoughts. And one of the powerful things that a silent meditative prayer practice can do for us oh no, is it lets us step back and actually recognize the amount of thoughts that are running through our minds. And the, and, the, and the transformation begins when you realize that you can observe or notice yourself thinking, which immediately then you think, well, geez, if I can see myself thinking or hear myself thinking or feel myself thinking, then who's really thinking and who's watching or feeling or hearing those thoughts? Which means that we are not exactly our thoughts. And when we learn to pay attention to our thoughts, and again, using the techniques of centering prayer, we're essentially releasing our thoughts to God. God begins to heal us at the deepest levels of our souls, of our fears, our guilt, especially false guilt, our shame, anxiety, uncertainty, all the things that tend to plague us, even our deepest traumas can come up. And God invites us just to give those things to him so that he can heal us. So the practice of centering prayer is really simple. It's we sit with our eyes closed, set a timer. I use a Fitbit. I mean, if those of you are watching on video, I literally just have my Fitbit and I set the timer on there for 20 minutes. I get in a comfortable chair. I do it right here sometimes. I also have a really comfortable chair downstairs in my living room that I use. Uh, you can do it alone, which I do sometimes. Uh, every morning, I do. I have the privilege of doing it with my wife. As soon as we wake up, we have a cup of coffee and then we do 20 minutes of silent meditative prayer together. And that's really powerful. And that can actually sometimes help you to kind of hang on when you feel like the time's going to go forever. But when you sit in silence, you just close your eyes and you pick up a prayer word. And this is the critical piece. And I simply recommend that you use the word Jesus because it's as a Christian form of prayer, we usually pray in Jesus's name. So we might as well just use the word Jesus as our prayer word. Now, what does the prayer word do? We use the prayer word not as a mantra. So we're not just going Jesus, 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 or even going breathing in Jesus, breathing out Jesus, or any kind of, you know, again, a mantra type of thing. But what we do, we sit in silence, and when you perceive or recognize that you're in some kind of a thought loop, which will be most of the time, and again, one of the misconceptions about silent meditative prayer, really any type of meditation, is that somehow you can stop yourself from thinking. That, that doesn't happen. Instead, it's a step back. And when you recognize that you're lost in a thought loop, you just simply use the prayer word Jesus. And that kind of stands for Lord Jesus, here I am. I'm sitting in silence with you. 
And when you use the prayer word, just simply to release that thought. And what that does, it just breaks up our thoughts into little, you know, split second moments where there's no thought going on. It's in, and it's in those moments that sometimes we're going to encounter God. It's because we don't want our thoughts to separate us from God. Now, again, I'm not anti-intellectual. I mean, you can see my bookshelf back here. I write books. I get paid to think. But what this does is it just basically says there's a deeper way to encounter God than just through our typical use of metaphors and words and spoken prayers, hymns, scripture reading, that we can encounter God literally in the silence, in the spaces between our thoughts. And it's truly and profoundly transformative. So what is it about our thoughts? Well, one of my favorite quotations comes actually from a business coach named Dan Sullivan. And he always says, your problem isn't the problem. Your problem is how you think about the problem. And I like that because it's a, it's a reframe, right? Because most of the pain that we actually experience in our lives are not so much the things that we run into and experience. It's actually the meaning that we give to them. Okay. Many of the philosophical traditions come up with that kind of a piece, right? And, and the problem is many of us have sort of embedded into ourselves a lot of what the old Christian motivational speaker Zig Ziglar used to say is stinking thinking. Beyond just stinking thinking, we also have memories and thoughts about really traumatic experiences that we've had. Uh, we have thoughts about conflicts that we've had in the past. We have thoughts about the sins that we struggle with the most deeply. All that stuff's embedded in us. And when you sit in silence, those things are going to come up. But I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. So let me talk for a second. The classic advice, and this comes from Thomas Keating and the earliest proponents of Centering Prayer of how to deal with our thoughts and it's ingenious. They call it the four R's. And the four R's, are, if you're looking at the video, I have it right here behind me, but it's really easy if you're just listening to this as audio. It's resist no thought, retain no thought, react to no thought, gently return using our prayer word. Okay, And that last phrase is incredibly important. I'll get to that. So what are those four R's really getting at? Well, the resist no thought is the idea is don't, don't try not to think. Thoughts are inevitable and they're going to come into our minds. So you just don't resist them at all. But you don't want to retain them either. Okay, And the retain part is easy for a lot of things. Like, for example, I often joke that one of the thoughts that always goes in my mind, especially early on in my centering prayer sessions, is I wonder... Did I really set the timer on my Fitbit? You know, that, that's a essentially meaningless thought, but it's distracting. But I have to release that. And so there's a lot of just kind of meaningless thoughts, or maybe you'll hear a bird singing outside, or maybe they mow the grass outside, and so you're getting distracted by that. Those are pretty easy to not resist. You just hear a stimuli, or maybe you have an itch on your forehead. You know, just scratch your head if you got an itch, by the way. So those are the easy ones. The trickier things uh, to not retain, though, would be like, let's say that you get a great idea for something. 
like if you're a pastor or like, you know, I'm a professor. So let's say I get to get this wonderful idea while I'm sitting in silence and this inspirational thought comes down. Maybe it's a great title for a lecture. Maybe it's a point I've been thinking through. Maybe it's a solution to a problem. Well, guess what? In Centering Prayer, you don't retain that e e either and you just let it go, trusting that if that thought really was important, it'll come back to you later. So you want to retain no thoughts. And again, that's the, the, the most difficult part about retaining is if you get a really positive thought or an idea about something that you'd like to remember, you just got to let that go. Gently return using your silent word back to Jesus. Now, the topic of this particular podcast is going to be essentially on the third line, react to no thought. Because once you've been practicing really any type of solitude practice, you're going to be confronted with the deepest and darkest stuff on the inside of you. Okay, I just want to give that a warning. Nobody told me that was going to happen when I first started practicing silent meditative prayer, and I thought something was wrong with me. But there's an entire tradition in, with these contemplative practices about of recording the troubling thoughts or even the evil thoughts or distractions that will confront you while you're in silence and solitude. Now, what you'll usually see is, again, this is, and this is how God heals us. God's going to bring out of our unconscious uh, into the deep, uh, the deep resources and cre crevices of our bodies. Because, again, I, I said, Sunday prayer helps me to put my head back on my body. You know, one of the things that I noticed about myself during my healing journey, and by the way, I'm still on that journey, was that I recognized how much pain I felt in my own body when I just paid attention. Like I can feel a lot of tightness in my chest when I'm really anxious. I have this funny spot right on the back. It's on my left side. It's in like the, the muscle right between my spine and, the, and, my, um, and my shoulder blade. When, when I'm under stress, I can just feel a knot that just always shows up in that place. I can feel, I notice I felt butterflies in my stomach all the time. And I just realized, you know what, I don't want to live like that anymore. I want to figure out why does my body hold pain in it? And why does the pain feelings, are, why are they stimulated in certain places and with certain types of thoughts, right? And so when I sat in silence, when I first started off, and I put this in the book, and again, this is a little embarrassing, I recognized uh, after a while of sitting in silence, just how much anger I had on the inside of me. And so I would be sitting there with the intention, again, centering prayers about an intention. I'm going to sit in silence before God and just surrender my thoughts so that I can have this direct soul-to-soul -soul connection, if you will, with, with our Lord. But I realized how angry I was. I would have tapes play in my head of past wrongs, at least from my perspective. And I'd literally find myself arguing with people and events from the past and reenacting past. Have you ever done that yourself? And, and I just saw anger in my heart. Um, and then the other thing that would happen sometimes is I would sit out in silence and, you know, this doesn't happen all the time, but not only anger, but what I would see show up is I'd, you know, my mind would just drift to um, sex. So I would have a sexual fantasy or something in my thought, thoughts when I'm sitting in silence. And I literally remember thinking like, geez, what is wrong with me? I'm sitting here in silence with God and I'm angry. And then sometimes I get sexual thoughts. That's kind of embarrassing. Then I, then I, I had this eureka moment. I realized, wow. 
you know, God knows my thoughts. And I'm still sitting here with God, despite the things that are churning up on my inside. And that was a transformational moment, because what do you do? You don't react to these things. You just observe what's coming up because we can't control our thoughts any more than you can control what you dream about at night. And so it's a matter of just releasing those things, you know, and, and some of us have really deep pain from the past. We have traumas. We have things that we're afraid of. Sometimes you'll get confronted with images of those and it almost kind of reenacts in your mind. And again, you don't want to react because the danger of reacting is you just jam it back down. And I can testify long term, I think a lot of the pain that I felt in my body over the years was because I didn't have the courage to actually just give my deepest hurts to God, my shame, my guilt, my fear. You know, I had done it with my head, but I hadn't done it with all of me. And silence is a fully embodied practice where we can just release these things out of ourselves and give them to God. So we don't react to that stuff. You know, and slowly, uh, I don't have the types of thoughts that were disturbing to me as frequently. And God is just continues to slowly kind of bring things up from the past. And I just give them to God. And, and that slowly heals us. Now, when we, I have, when we talk about troubling thoughts or distracting thoughts or evil is even as Evagrius Ponticus called them evil thoughts. And Evagrius Ponticus is import, was really important in my thinking and I talk about his work in my book. Evagrius was one of the early monastics and he was a bit of a scholar and a great observer of human nature. So he noticed and made a essentially um, a taxonomy or even a rubric of the types of thoughts disturbing thoughts, evil thoughts that would confront a person who is committed to a life of silence and solitude. And by the way, those eight distracting thoughts over the centuries morph into what most of us today call the seven deadly sins, though in a sense in popular culture that's been massively distorted because originally they were thoughts that were the monastics had to confront in themselves. So like if you go back and read about, say, for example, St. Anthony, who was one of the very early Christian mystics and hermits and practice, practice, practitioners of silence and solitude, he called these things demons. Like he tries to, he tried to give everything to God and went out in the desert. And then he talked about being attacked by the demon of lust, for example, or the demon of greed or the demon of gluttony. And, uh, you know, whether or not you think those are really demons, I, my own personal opinion is that's just the stuff that's inside of us. And what those are examples of, if you know the whole idea of Christian vices and virtues, one of the Christian virtues is the virtue of temperance, which is moderation. And uh, it's critical as Christians that, you know, we live lives that reflect God's character, but there's part of us that wars against the love that God wants us to live out. And that is when we don't live moderate or lives of moderation and temperance, we instead, as Augustine said, we live lives that are ruled by concupiscence. Again, that's a million dollar word. Don't worry about that. It's better to think of that as the um, certain parts of our lives become disordered desires because we all have desires, right? And these evil Distracting thoughts are all about the normal things that human beings desire, but it's when they 
become disordered desires that they can begin to deform us instead of forming us. So I want to talk about each of those for a second. There's a level, first level version of these disordered desires, these evil distracting thoughts, and those are the are gluttony, greed, and lust. Now, what's really interesting about that is those are three common needs or desires that we just have biologically, right? You know, our amygdala, our brain system, um, triggers us in certain circumstances, and it's just part of what it means to be a human, but we have to war against the amplification or the disordering of these natural inclinations that we have. So you like think, wait, what do you mean? Gluttony, greed, and lust are natural? Partially. So, because what's underneath um, gluttony is what? Gluttony, it's worse. You just get the picture of somebody just piling food into their mouth. That's a natural impulse because if we don't eat, guess what? We die. So God put it in us to have a desire for food. It becomes a disordered desire, though, when it prevents us from doing the spiritual formation practices that allow us to grow into the persons that God created us to be. So maybe we get obsessed with our physical appearance. We get obsessed. Oh my gosh, I have to have all organic food. Again, there's no this is not a diatribe against eating really healthy food. I personally think we should eat the healthiest food that we have access to. But when you become obsessed with that, it can become gluttony. And that slowly deforms us. You know, greed is the same way. And you think uh, greed isn't just about money because what's underneath that is our deep-seated need for security, Right. Part of our brain is designed to protect us from things that are scary. And most of us still operate out of fear. And that fear used to help us. So like if you would have run into a saber-toothed tiger back in one of the you know Paleolithic periods, it's really good that you might actually kind of freak out and think, geez, I need to do something about this. But the problem is some of us can become so obsessed with getting security that we be, we become greedy, and it's not just about money. It's a it's the greed is really a desire to control. So we want to note that, and then lust, of course. Again, uh, Western Church has many hang-ups about uh, sexuality, and and again, that's one of the big conversation pieces right now. What is a authentic biblical view? of human persons and the relationship to sexual expression and sexual desire. Lust, I mean, sex isn't lust. Lust is the disordered desire for sex. And again, that's a basic human instinct. Most of us, again, there's some people that report they have no desire at all, but most of us have it in most species on the planet, actually, all animals, we have a desire to reproduce. And so sex is a beautiful gift that God's given us. But again, the disordered twisting of that, which is so easy to see in our world. I mean, you go into the East, the East tends to cover up, especially women, head to toe. Whereas in the West, tend to strip women of all their clothes and they just simply become objects. And so lust is really just the objectification. It could be women objectifying men as well, but it's usually easy to see in popular cultures women being objectified, right, just to be fair. But this works both ways with both sexes. Um, and so lust is the disordered desire um, for, um, for sex. It's as, as simple as that. 
So those are the things, and, and again, and, and again, I obviously was having lustful thoughts when I first started during centering prayer, and I just realized it's like I need to surrender that to God so that I can have a healthier view of, of sexuality, and that's been critical in, in for me in in my my new my my marriage, um, and um, and so I'm super grateful for that insight that's come out of centering prayer. It's helped us to really have super renewed intimacy, and that's a beautiful thing. The second layer of these disturbing thoughts that can come up in centering prayer or a lot of other silent practices are anger. Again, ding. That was one of the things that I struggled with. And then sloth or acidia, which is the Greek word. It's really better to think of this as spiritual laziness. It's not just I'm going to be lazy and not work. I mean, that's a whole different conversation. Um, it's actually... Um, a laziness about spiritual things like um, um, Evagrius called this the noonday demon. Again, he thought all these things were demons. And it was that he noticed that monks, um, male or female, um, got lazy about noon and were ready to give up on their spiritual practices for the day. So there's always that temptation. And that's a disordered desire. It's like, yeah, I'm done. I've grown enough gotten far enough in God's grace. I don't want to go anymore. Well, that's, that's, that's sloth. That's spiritual laziness. And then there's sadness. And, and sadness, it's really spiritual sadness. We're not talking about depression. And so, you know, um, if you, some people struggle literally with um, imbalance of chemicals, uh, of real depression, and, and that's a, a medical condition. This is more of a spiritual sense of just sadness. And a lot of times, Maybe you find this in your own life. You have regrets. You have regrets about your spiritual experiences. You have regrets about something in the past. You have the regrets that maybe, geez, I wish, I mean, this is a lot of older students. Geez, I wish I just would have answered God's call when I was uh, younger. And even my own life, I kind of wish, I mean, I don't really, would never really choose to go back and relive my life. But I know one thing that I kind of wish, and I have some regrets, and it makes me a little sad. I wish that somehow I would have found out about centering prayer in these deep contemplative practices back when I was younger. And I kind of, sometimes I wonder what my, how my life would have turned, um, turned out. Again, that's not an unhealthy thing, but if that gets amplified and you get the spiritual sadness, that can actually block God's grace. And you can get you know, that some, sometimes thoughts about that will show up during your contemplative practices. Now, again, what do you do with any of those things? What do you do when you're experiencing glut, gluttonous thoughts or greedy thoughts or thoughts of lust, anger, sloth, sadness. And again, when I say thoughts, this, this can be images. It kind of depends how your brain works. I mean, it can be feelings, visual images that you see inside your head. Um, it could be sounds that you hear as you recreate those things. However you actually process your, your thoughts, you gently release it because the temptation, again, is to jam it down and pretend that it's not there. That's the guaranteed way to stay stuck spiritually. So we break through this thing. Centering prayer, God uses silent meditative prayer to heal us of these disordered desires, blocks, distractions to our spiritual growth by inviting us just to give those things to, to, to the Almighty. Give them to Jesus. Then the last two, and it's interesting that Evagrius thought these were the worst. You know, in our, in our own minds, think about it. Um, Probably the greatest sin anybody can commit, it's usually the spectacular ones, usually has to do with money. 
or with sex, right? If you think about watching, you know, pastors fall, which we've seen way too much recently, or other people, we think of those as the ultimate sins, a vagrious thought, the deepest ones, and these were the most subtle, were pride, sins of pride. And Evagrius was so uh, committed to making these, uh, 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 to emphasizing these pride is that he pri- he breaks pride into two, right? So for Evagrius, pride itself was that subtle temptation. It's going to come up to see yourself as superior to others, especially spiritually. Ouch, right? We've got to release that. And then the other thing, the, the other type, so that's kind of an internal pride, a pride from the inside. Vainglory is the other side of pride. That's where we desire other people to praise us. Oh, Brian, he's such a great guy. Wow, Dr. Russell's so wonderful. And what, if you, you know, it's nice to get compliments. So this isn't saying, oh, plug your ears if somebody gives you a compliment. But when you have a dis- disordered need, to have the praise of others coming on you, whether they give you self-esteem or because you enjoy it for whatever reason, we need to give that to God. Because pride's a killer in communities. Uh, pride's a killer for your own growth. I mean, the second you think that you've grown above other people, you're probably done growing at that point, when in fact you're probably way behind some of the folks that you think you're better at. So God can heal us of of the deepest wounds we have by literally releasing these disturbing types of thoughts to God. Again, there's probably other categories, but I don't want to make this episode too long, but those are some of the things that you're going to run into. If you sit in silence long enough, yeah, you're going to have to let go of, you know, good ideas. You have to learn to let go of if you get distracted by a noise or whatever. But the the hard stuff, the deep work that God wants to do in you, is when your unconscious begins to unload and the dark parts of yourself begin to emerge. And again, the desire is to hide those things from God. It's to be like Adam and Eve who hid behind a tree when they thought they were naked. But remember, what does God say? What did God say to Adam? You know that. He said, Adam, where are you? Come out. And despite the fact of of the guilt and the shame and the fear that both Adam and Eve had, what did God do? God clothed them. And even though they thought that the wages of their sin was going to be death, God didn't end their lives, right? God clothed them and God began to make a way for humanity to become fully reconciled back to him. And he did that through the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Guess what, friends? When we do centering prayer, We're sitting with Jesus, and he's there, arms open wide for us, inviting us to let go of the thoughts that many times are what's actually separating us from the deep work that God wants to do. When you check out my book, I go into a real deep dive on exactly how all this process works, but I've given you a a pretty good guide, even if you don't go ahead and look at the book. So when you sit in silence, don't react to thoughts that are embarrassing, troubling, that bring you shame, guilt, fear, anxiety. Instead, just notice them and gently release them using your prayer word. Again, I, I think you should use Jesus. 
you know, those of you who've engaged in my other material know that one of my favorite prayers comes from uh, spiritual director Macrina uh, Care in her prayer. I heard this first from Maxie Dunham, who was a former president of Asbury Seminary. Heard it in chapel. But the prayer is this, Oh God, help me believe the truth about myself, no matter how beautiful it is. I love that prayer. Because that's what slowly happens in centering prayer. You see the ugly stuff, and that's what I just talked about. But you also begin to see yourself the way that God sees you, as a person loved by God, as God's beloved, as Henry Nouwen said, as um, Abba's child, as Brendan Manning says, just as a person loved by God. I want to read just a little bit about of, out of my book to give you a taste. This is, this is closer to the end, and this is from a chapter called The Upward Spiral of Love. <clears throat> when I truly believe the truth about myself, good and bad, I've learned to love myself as the person that God created me to be. And since I love myself, again, this isn't in a narcissistic way, I can now love God more profoundly. I can sing Charles Wesley's words with a whole heart. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? And tis mercy all, immense and free, for, oh my God, it found out me. Through centering prayer, I see myself as God sees me without recoiling in shame, guilt, and fear. My false self in the shadow lose, its, lose their power. And the real me, the person that God created me to be, with my strengths and my weaknesses, it emerges as God heals me. For the sake of and the glory of God, my interactions with others find their roots in this love too. I can love God with my heart, my soul, and my strength. You know, this might sound boastful, but stick with me just for a second. I've said previously, I'm not talking about absolute perfection. We're talking about relationships. We're not talking about mathematical precision in our Christian lives. There's always room for growth, and that's the beauty of love. You know, it's interesting, when God creates created the world, in the, when you read the first couple of chapters of Genesis, God put humanity in the garden, and he said to keep and tell it. And that's a beautiful picture of the work that God wants to do in our lives, because in a real sense, you have these moments where you're kind of, you've made it, but there's always room for growth. Just like in a garden, right? If you have a garden, you can make it really beautiful, but you're not done. There's always room for some pruning, maybe a new flower, maybe you adjust things, maybe you're just going to water stuff a little differently. So a garden has this ongoing growth. Another way to think of the work that God wants to do for us is to go to the ocean. You know, I live in Florida, so this is an easy metaphor. But when you go to the ocean, you know, a lot of people don't even get in the water. And I think that's what it used to be like for me. Still, everything was up in my head, and I thought I had it all figured out. But you know what? God wants to invite us in on an adventure in the ocean. Again, if you go to the ocean, you'll notice some people just will move their chairs up and just dip their toes in. But then others will start wading out, maybe get knee deep, and then you'll see them kind of jump back because the waves are coming. It's scary, or maybe the water's cold. But then there'll be folks that go out waist deep. You know, then it gets chest deep, then it gets here, right? At some point, if you keep moving to the ocean, you're all in. And for me, that's that's the transformational moment when you get immersed 
in the ocean. And what I'm talking about is the ocean of God's love. And that ocean is infinite. But God doesn't want us to stop, friends. God wants us to keep going. And again, this metaphor breaks down because there is a point at which you would get as far in as you can. But if, you know, if, if you're living on the planet Earth, which we all do, the deepest place, at least as far as I know, is out in the Pacific Ocean at the Marianas Trench. And there's a place called Challenger's Deep that is so deep that if you dropped Mount Everest into Challenger's Deep, it would be miles under the surface, the peak of Mount Everest. So that's to me, that's the that's the that's the journey of love. And so there's no real end to the centering prayer stuff. We can continue to grow deeper and deeper in God's love. And what does that do for us? It's a spiral. We can love ourselves even more as we understand the incredible work that God can do in us through Jesus that frees us to love our neighbors even more profoundly because it's love your neighbor as yourself. Most of us love God or try to love our neighbor. Especially as Christians, we tend to love our neighbors more than we love ourselves. Just imagine growing in so much love that it even amplifies out to your neighbor. And then obviously it ultimately returns to God and we can love God with our whole being. And that's that kind of perfect love that Wesley talked about. But something else happens too when this happens. See, when God cleans you up, when you can actually get confronted with the truth about yourself through these silence and solitude practices, you'll notice in your own life there'll be no illusions about your own motivations. You'll see mixed motives sometimes, but you'll know. You'll know yourself, right? And you can be honest. You can start to be transparent because you're comfortable, because you know that God loves you, even those hurt parts of you. And that's the critical move. Because what you'll do is you'll experience a shift away from what I call the unholy trinity, you know, fear, guilt, shame. And that's what really sits underneath even those eight distracting thoughts. It's our fear, our guilt, and our shame. And when we shift out of fear, a life based on fear, guilt, and shame, to one of acceptance by God and love, we open up more fully to the world. We no longer see other people as singular entities, whereas we're complex. We also recognize that every person that we interact with, even people that we disagree with that may actually be mean to us, they're just as complicated as we are and just as need, in need of God's grace. You know, and when you own and get freed from fear, guilt, and shame, your story will morph. Mine has. It'll morph from being just a novella, you know, a little short novel, rooted in a false self, to a fully nuanced autobiography that reveals the true depths of our existence and explores every facet of our character. You know, that's scary, right? It's not without risk. It feels like even right now, I've shared a lot about myself today. I have to say it feels scary. And that's one of the scariest things about my book is put a lot of myself in there. So it's not without risk. You know, it feels uncomfortable sometimes and you can feel vulnerable to share your own story. But here's what I found, friends. God will write a story of a grace-filled renewal in each of us. But that's not an end in itself. The gospel comes to us on its way to someone else 
And we become those wounded healers that Henry Nouwen talked about. And every experience of God's grace and every bit of healing becomes then a commission to mission so that we can share that experience with other people. In my ministry as a professor, you know, of course, I share my biblical knowledge and still serve as a biblical studies professor. And I talk about theology in my classes, of course, with students, but I also share myself. And my teaching's never been better, not suddenly because I'm smarter, but my teaching's better because I'm engaging people at the soul level now. I share myself. I no longer fear pulling back the curtain on myself. Of course, I maintain healthy boundaries with people, but I try to give students a glimpse of what spiritual formation really looks like in the flesh. And God's brought renewed opportunities for me to serve other people. And for that, I'm really grateful. So I hope this has really helped you. Again, talked about how God uses silent meditative prayer to transform us. Again, my, my book has kind of an audacious title, Centering Prayer, Sitting Quietly in God's Presence Can Change Your Life. Again, it's not a quick fix, friends. So I don't want you to hear that subtitle as the quick fix. It's a process. I've been sitting in silence for years, but it's been great. It will change your life. It's changed mine. Friends, thanks so much for listening. Thanks for uh, subscribing to the podcast. If this has been helpful, would you share it with somebody that maybe really needs to hear this today? And if I can be any service to you, feel free to reach out with questions I'll try to help you the best that I can. And again, I want to put that promise back out. If um, anybody wants to use my book with a group or buy a block, I'd love to, to take some time and answer questions and just sit in silence with God with your group. Email me, deepdivespirituality at gmail.com. Until next time, live by faith, be known by love, and be a voice of hope to others.